The Veterans Affairs Department's big medical campuses are full of physical security gaps. The VA's Office of Inspector General has found unlocked exterior doors, broken surveillance cameras, and a shortage of VA police officers top the list. For details, we turn to Deputy Assistant Inspector General Lee Ann Seawright. Ms. Seawright, good to have you back. It's great to talk to you again, Tom. And what prompted a look at physical security of VA facilities? And these are often very large campuses, aren't they? Right. So given the growing concerns about facility security, we initiated this review to provide VA leaders with a snapshot of on-the-ground security conditions at their medical facilities. You know, there's over 171 medical campuses across the United States, and each of those are open campuses, people coming and going and streets running right in front of them, some in the middle of major metropolitan areas. So we wanted to take a look at those security postures at each of those facilities. And the incidence of breaches or violent types of activities is relatively small, isn't it, though? It is. VA has actually implemented a new reporting system in the last year, two years. And so we think that that is some of that. The level of reporting maybe isn't as great. And we've seen the growth of it over the last few years that they've opened up this new system. So we think if we peeked into that, like next year, we'd probably see a lot more, a higher level of that serious incident reporting going on. Sure. And it's against the backdrop of serious incidents seeming to happen more and more in greater society. Exactly. Reflects very much to that. And you had an interesting methodology. This wasn't a report review or simply a review of data. You went there. Tell us about how you went about this uh, look-see. This was a very non-traditional effort for my teams. We actually, you know, spend a few months preparing and planning for audits when we normally do them. We give VA a notification. We, you know, have multiple meetings so that they know it's coming. But in this case, we didn't do any of that. We actually notified VA leadership of our review the day we showed up on site. So to get that snapshot of time and to really understand what a facility looked like, we really thought it was important for them to not be aware of us coming on site. And so we set these plans into motion. We took all of our teams and pretty much shut down operations for a lot of our audits to be able to put 37 teams out to look at 70 facilities. And our teams were a mix of investigators and auditors. So we had criminal investigators that have experience in looking at these sorts of issues to allow us to walk around these campuses, to focus on those main facilities where the primary care is occurring, and to really open doors. We literally walked the entire facility and opened every door that we could. Whether it said it was a public access or non-public access, we tried to open them. 37 teams, how many people were on each team? So there was 150 team members that went across to all these. So we usually had about a two to three people team. And did you do it all within a short time period? We did. We hit 33 sites in one day and we did 70 sites within the first week. Because you didn't want one site calling the other and saying, hey, lock up all the doors and, you know, they're coming. Exactly. Interestingly enough, you know, our results actually changed a little bit from the first day to the third day. We noticed, you know, we saw the transfer of that information going across the facilities and giving them a little bit of a heads up to prepare. So they were ready for us when we showed up on day three. All right. Wow. Amazing. And just generally, I want to ask about several aspects, but just the doors, because these buildings often have maybe, I don't know, 30, 40 different exterior doors, you know, for putting out trash and in the back, which you would expect to be locked and you found some unlocked? Correct. 
you know, to the doors when we were planning this, we thought the same thing, like 30 to 40 doors we were sort of estimating for our facility. But really what we found is that some of these facilities have, you know, over 100 doors in one facility on ground level. And we were actually surprised at the number of doors that we were able to open. Some of them clearly had signs that, you know, these were to remain locked and that they were emergency exits only or entrances only. And we determined that a lot of them weren't locked. You know, we tried to open or enter almost 3,000 doors within these 70 sites. And we found that for those non-public doors, so those that were supposed to be locked, we found almost 17% of them were unlocked. Wow. Unbelievable. I mean, it's hard to, it is hard to believe. We're speaking with Lee Ann Seawright, Deputy Assistant Inspector General at Veterans Affairs. And what about surveillance cameras? Do the doors have watches, eyeballs on them in some manner? So of the 374 public doors, we found that 23% of those did not actually have cameras on them. And further with those public doors, VA has a requirement that they have security presence. So whether it's a security guard or a VA police officer or just someone attending that door that, you know, a, a welcoming person at that point. We found that that wasn't the case. We found that 87% of those public entrances really had no presence at them. And then you add to that the lack of cameras. And then cameras overall, we found that 19% of the cameras at these 70 facilities were not in working order. And over 24 facilities had about 20% or more of their cameras that were not working. Would a fair metric for the doors be that there's really only two doors the public can come in through? One, I'm thinking of hospitals, there's a main door, and then there's an emergency entrance. And everything else you would expect to be locked. Is that the model that you had in mind? Yes, exactly. I mean, there might be more than one main door beyond the emergency entrance, but yes, there should only be a few ways for the public to enter into a facility. And for the non-public doors, I mean, there are people that could hammer them or pick the locks or something. So there you would still want surveillance, even if it's locked. Exactly. You would at least want some sort of camera presence or even where they have, you know, a key card or like the employees can enter that those shouldn't be propped open. And we found a lot of doors that were propped open that we could just walk in. And and unfortunately, in one case, the team was able to enter one of those non-public doors and continue through the hallway and ended up in the ICU. And that is definitely not an area that we would want public to be entering. Yeah, so somebody propped open the door, went around the corner to stubble out that unfiltered camel and figured they would go back in without a lot of walking. And discuss the issue of the staffing of VA police officers. So staffing has been an enduring problem for VA for the police department. So we've been looking at this issue since about 2018, and even the facilities themselves have reported staffing of police officers to be one of their top 10 most troubled, challenged areas to staff, you know, since 2018. What we found, though, for those 70 facilities that we went to, that they have an average vacancy rate of 33%, which is very significant. You know, you can't expect for a facility to have a good security posture if they don't have the appropriate level of staffing to really do the work they need to do. You know, all of these hardening efforts, the security, monitoring the cameras, doing the walk-arounds, having presence at those doors, that requires people. And without those people, you can't meet those missions. 
And if you look at the lack of staffing, the broken cameras, et cetera, the rest of it, it sounds like that VA has been really lucky so far. They have. They really have. I mean, one of the, I guess, benefits with cameras is that, you know, you don't really know that it's working or not working. So it's a bit of a deterrent to a certain extent, but they have definitely been lucky. And then what are your recommendations? I guess we can guess they're to fix those areas. But what was the reaction of the center directors when you told them, hey, I walked right into the ICU from the back door? I think there was a lot of surprise, frankly, on that, that, you know, you, you assume that if your doors are locked, that they, they are remaining locked. And, and that's not the case. So back to the staffing issue, as we've talked about, this has been an enduring issue. And so you know, normally we would make a recommendation to the Undersecretary of Health, you know, when we're talking about VHA facilities. But we decided to elevate some of these recommendations all the way to the VA secretary because we think it's so critically important that eyes be on these issues, specifically to the staffing, you know, ensuring that they're monitoring the status of these vacancies and the movement on these vacancies and that they're giving VA and VHA the authorities necessary to, you know, to hire these police officers. You know, we also made recommendations to the Undersecretary of Health to ensure that they have the staffing needs, that they're, you know, funded appropriately to support that and that they're authorizing these positions. You know, it's still a facility decision on hiring, right? They're the ones who dedicate those resources to those facilities to do the jobs. So we want the importance of supporting those hirings to be there. And then the inspection program, really, to make sure that they're doing the job they should be doing and to remedy these weaknesses and to fix these areas. And then third is really establishing those requirements for the security cameras and footage. You know, while we were doing this review, VA was also doing their own review of security cameras. And it's been a glaring issue in terms of there's no consistency in how they're handling cameras, how they're handling footage, what types of tools and systems that they're using and how well they do or don't work. I mean, we went from seeing like the old black and white monitor to seeing very sophisticated systems that, you know, you could track a license plate, you could, you know, do face identity, those sorts of tools. So there's a lot of disparity between the facilities. So some work to do, but ultimately the responsibility for a given facility security is that director, correct? It is the director and the chief of police for that facility, yes. All right. So they're on notice now. Leanne Seawright is Deputy Assistant Inspector General at Veterans Affairs. As always, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. 
It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and 
bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. (laughs) 
So that's sort of the way that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. And um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.